Book Two, Chapter Three of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lew Wallace, Book Two, Chapter Three. From the entrance to the holy city, equivalent to what is now called St. Stephen's Gate, a street extended westwardly, on a line parallel with the northern front of the Tower of Antonia, through a square from that famous castle. Keeping the course as far as the Tiropoian Valley, which it followed a little way south, it turned and again ran west until a short distance beyond what tradition tells us was the Judgment Gate, from whence it broke abruptly south. The traveller or the student, familiar with the sacred locality, will recognise the thoroughfare described as part of the Via Dolorosa, with Christians of more interest, though of a melancholy kind, than any street in the world. As the purpose in view does not at present require dealing with the whole street, it will be sufficient to point out a house standing in the angle last mentioned as marking the change of direction south, and which, as an important centre of interest, needs somewhat particular description. The building fronted north and west, probably four hundred feet each way, and, like most pretentious eastern structures, was two stories in height, and perfectly quadrangular. The street on the west side was about twelve feet wide, that on the north not more than ten, so that one walking close to the walls and looking up at them would have been struck by the rude, unfinished, uninviting, but strong and imposing appearance they presented for they were of stone laid in large blocks, undressed, on the outer side, in fact, just as they were taken from the quarry. A critic of this age would have pronounced the house fortalesque in style, except for the windows, with which it was unusually garnished, and the ornate finish of the doorways or gates. The western windows were four in number, the northern only two, all set on the line of the second story in such manner as to overhang the thoroughfares below. The gates were the only breaks of wall externally visible in the first story, and, besides being so thickly riven with iron bolts as to suggest resistance to battering rams, they were protected by cornices of marble, handsomely executed, and of such bold projection as to assure visitors well informed of the people, that the rich man who resided there was a Sadducee in politics and creed. Not long after the young Jew parted from the Roman at the palace up on the market-place, he stopped before the western gate of the house described, and knocked. The wicket, a door hung in one of the valves of the gate, was opened to admit him. He stepped in hastily and failed to acknowledge the low salam of the porter. To get an idea of the interior arrangement of the structure, as well as to see what more befell the youth, we will follow him. The passage into which he was admitted appeared not unlike a narrow tunnel with panelled walls and pitted ceiling. There were benches of stone on both sides, stained and polished by long use. Twelve or fifteen steps carried him into a courtyard, oblong north and south, and in every quarter, except the east, bounded by what seemed the fronts of two-story houses. 
of which the lower floor was divided into lewens, while the upper was terraced and defended by strong balustrading. The servants coming and going along the terraces, the noise of millstones grinding, the garments fluttering from ropes stretched from point to point, the chickens and pigeons in full enjoyment of the place, the goats, cows, donkeys, and horses stabled in the lewens, a massive trough of water, apparently for the common use, declared this court appurtenant to the domestic management of the owner. Eastwardly there was a division wall broken by another passageway, in all respects like the first one. Clearing the second passage, the young man entered a second court, spacious, square, and set with shrubbery and vines, kept fresh and beautiful by water from a basin erected near a porch on the north side. The lewens here were high, airy, and shaded by curtains striped alternate white and red. The arches of the lewens rested on clustered columns. A flight of steps on the south ascended to the terraces of the upper story, over which great awnings were stretched as a defence against the sun. Another stairway reached from the terraces to the roof, the edge of which, all around the square, was defined by a sculptured cornice and a parapet of burned clay tiling, sexangular and bright red. In this quarter, moreover, there was everywhere observable a scrupulous neatness, which, allowing no dust in the angles, not even a yellow leaf upon a shrub, contributed quite as much as anything else to the delightful general effect, insomuch that a visitor, breathing the sweet air, knew, in advance of introduction, the refinement of the family he was about to be calling upon. A few steps within the second court, the lad turned to the right, and, choosing a walk through the shrubbery, part of which was in flower, passed to the stairway and ascended to the terrace, a broad pavement of white and brown flags, closely laid, and much worn. Making way under the awning to a doorway on the north side, he entered an apartment which the dropping of the screen behind him returned to darkness. Nevertheless he proceeded, moving over a tiled floor to a divan, upon which he flung himself, face downwards, and lay at rest, his forehead upon his crossed arms. About nightfall a woman came to the door and called. He answered, and she went in. "'Supper is over, and it is night. Is not my son hungry?' she asked. "'No,' he replied. "'Are you sick?' "'I am sleepy.' "'Your mother has asked for you.' "'Where is she?' "'In the summer-house on the roof.' He stirred himself and sat up. "'Very well. Bring me something to eat.' "'What do you want?' "'What you please, Amra. I am not sick, but indifferent. Life does not seem as pleasant as it did this morning. A new ailment, O oh my Amra, and you who know me so well, who never failed me, may think of the things now that answer for food and medicine. Bring me what you choose. Amra's questions, and the voice in which she put them, low, sympathetic, and solicitous, were significant of an endeared relation between the two. She laid her hand upon his forehead, then, as satisfied, went out, saying, I will see. After a while she returned, bearing on a wooden platter a bowl of milk, 
some thin cakes of white bread broken, a delicate paste of braid wheat, a bird broiled, and honey and salt. On one end of the platter there was a silver goblet full of wine, on the other a brazen hand-lamp lighted. The room was then revealed, its walls smoothly plastered, the ceiling broken by great oaken rafters, brown with rain-stains and thyme, the floor of small diamond-shaped white and blue tiles, very firm and enduring, a few stools with legs carved in imitation of the legs of lions, a divan raised a little above the floor, trimmed with blue cloth, and partially covered by an immense striped woolen blanket or shawl, in brief, a Hebrew bedroom. The same light also gave the woman to view. Drawing a stool to the divan, she placed the platter upon it, then knelt close by, ready to serve him. Her face was that of a woman of fifty, dark-skinned, dark-eyed, and at the moment softened by a look of tenderness almost maternal. A white turban covered her head, leaving the lobes of the ear exposed, and in them the sign that settled her condition, an orifice bored by a thick awl. She was a slave, of Egyptian origin, to whom not even the sacred fiftieth year could have brought freedom, nor would she have accepted it, for the boy she was attending was her life. She had nursed him through babyhood, tended him as a child, and could not break the service. To her love he could never be a man. He spoke but once during the meal. "'You remember, O my Emra,' he said, "'the Masala, who used to visit me here days at a time.' "'I remember him.' "'He went to Rome some years ago, and is now back. I called upon him to-day.' A shudder of disgust seized the lad. "'I knew something had happened.' she said, deeply interested. I never liked the Masala. Tell me all. But he fell into musing, and to her repeated inquiries only said, He is much changed, and I shall have nothing more to do with him. When Amro took the platter away, he also went out, and up from the terrace to the roof. The reader is presumed to know somewhat of the uses of the housetop in the east. In the matter of customs, Climate is a lawgiver everywhere. The Syrian summer day drives the seeker of comfort into the darkened Lewin. Night, however, calls him forth early, and the shadows deepening over the mountainsides seem veils dimly covering Circean singers, but they are far off, while the roof is close by, and raised above the level of the shimmering plain enough for the visitation of cool airs, and sufficiently above the trees to allure the stars down closer, down at least into brighter shining. So the roof became a resort, became playground, sleeping-chamber, boudoir, rendezvous for the family, place of music, dance, conversation, reverie, and prayer. The motive that prompts the decoration, at whatever cost, of interiors in colder climes, suggested to the Oriental the embellishment of his housetop. The parapet ordered by Moses became a potter's triumph. Above that, later, arose towers, plain and fantastic. Still later, kings and princes crowned their roofs with summer-houses of marble and gold. When the Babylonians hung gardens in the air, extravagance could push the idea no further." 
the lad whom we are following walks slowly across the housetop to a tower built over the northwest corner of the palace. Had he been a stranger, he might have bestowed a glance upon the structure as he drew nigh it, and seen all the dimness permitted, a darkened mass, low, latticed, pillared, and domed. He entered, passing under a half-raised curtain. The interior was all darkness, except that on four sides there were arched openings like doorways, through which the sky, lighted with stars, was visible. In one of the openings, reclining against a cushion from a divan, he saw the figure of a woman, indistinct even in white, floating drapery. At the sound of his steps upon the floor, the fan in her hand stopped, glistening where the starlight struck the jewels with which it was sprinkled, and she sat up and called his name. "'Judah, my son!' "'It is I, mother,' he answered, quickening his approach. Going to her, he knelt, and she put her arms around him, and with kisses pressed him to her bosom. End of chapter.